Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue our investigation of Jesus' central message, what he called the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out that Protestantism often avoids the obvious when it seems to bypass Jesus' preaching of the Gospel and rely almost exclusively on the letters of Paul. It may be of interest to our listeners to know that the letters of Paul in the original Greek manuscripts were not even in the position assigned to them in our modern Bibles. In the original manuscript order of the New Testament, we find, after the book of Acts, that James, Peter, John, and Jude take a place of prominence. That's because they wrote general epistles to the whole wide church. Now, Paul's epistles, though they're very important, are written mostly to individual churches, and so they should take second position after James, Peter, John, and Jude. But today we tend always to gravitate to the book of Romans, a difficult book indeed. And there's a reason historically why Rome was put into a position of prominence and the book of Romans, bearing the name Rome, was placed ahead of the other letters of Paul and indeed ahead of the other apostles, James, Peter, John, and Jude. It might be of interest to you to try reading the New Testament in its original manuscript order sometime and rely heavily then upon James and Peter and John and Jude before you get to the more difficult letters of Paul. Luther said that there's more gospel to be found in the letters of Paul than in Matthew, Mark and Luke. We consider that to be a very strange and misleading statement. Jesus is the original preacher of the gospel as we showed in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. In 1 Timothy 6 verse 3, Paul referred to the sound words, namely the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John, at the end of his life, warned in 2 John verses 7 to 9, that if anybody does not come bringing the teaching of Messiah, Messiah's teaching, he should be avoided. The heart and the center of our New Testament revelation is to be found in the precious words of Jesus. Reread the Gospel of John with that idea in mind. See what an extraordinary emphasis there is on holding fast the words and the teachings of Jesus. Jesus' teachings are the ones that bring life in the coming age, mistranslated as eternal or everlasting life in our modern versions. As many scholars know, that expression, zoe aeonios, as modern Greeks would pronounce that famous phrase, zoe aeonios, really means the life of the age to come, the life to be enjoyed in the future kingdom of God on the earth, to be initiated and inaugurated when Jesus returns at his second coming. What Jesus offered the public was immortality, as well as a place of responsibility as a co-regent and co-ruler with Jesus in the coming kingdom. Jesus, in fact, ratified the New Testament by dying to invest his life in the words and the teachings which he had delivered from God his Father. In the final supper with his disciples, you remember, in Luke 22, verses 28 to 30, Jesus said that the apostles were those who had followed him through thick and thin in the face of a great deal of opposition from the religious establishment. Now, what reward then did Jesus offer these apostles? He said, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, 
And just as my Father has covenanted me a kingdom, I covenant with you to give you a kingdom, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones to administer the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, there's a very clear idea of the Christian hope. It's nothing to do with departing to realms beyond the sky as a disembodied spirit. It's a very concrete messianic hope, and it's related to the future of our world. We're looking here at the reconstitution of the world on a sound and sane political basis when Jesus returns. Jesus fully expected to return in power and glory, and at that time then he would carry out his duties as the Messiah. The Messiah, you know, is the one, according to the Scriptures, who is destined to rule the world from Jerusalem and to restore the fallen throne promised to David. There will be a restitution of the Davidic throne in Jerusalem when Jesus returns, and the world will be introduced to an era of unparalleled prosperity and peace. The lion will lie down with the lamb. The nations will beat their swords into plowshares. They will destroy their armaments by turning them into farm implements. And the nations then will stream up to Jerusalem and say, Let's learn God's ways, and peace will extend across the globe. There will be unparalleled prosperity, a veritable paradise for the whole world, as laid out by the promises given by inspiration throughout Old Testament prophecy. Jesus simply confirms those promises. Not for one moment did he alter the nature of the concrete Hebrew hope, which was his legacy. Jesus, Paul said, came to confirm the promises made to the fathers. And here in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 30, we find Jesus giving us a brilliant insight into the messianic future. He envisaged a time coming when those faithful apostles who had stood by him throughout his trials would be granted a position of rulership with him in the coming kingdom to be established on the earth. He promised them that they would one day sit and eat and drink at his table in his kingdom. And they would at that time be empowered with royal office so that they could administer the regathered tribes of Israel in the land. This, of course, was exactly what the Hebrew prophets had envisaged. And so naturally Jesus, who was a great believer in the Hebrew Bible, what we unfortunately call the Old Testament, Jesus obviously expected the fulfillment of those grand and marvelous promises at his second coming in the future. Now, the whole point of the Christian gospel is to tell the potential convert how he may have access to that life in the coming age of the kingdom of God. Now, preparation for that future life must begin now. To be born again means to start all over, to have a new identity, to make a fresh start, and that rebirth can be initiated by the reception of what Jesus called the message about the kingdom, the seed, which is the germ of immortality, Jesus said, is contained in his gospel message about the kingdom of God, Matthew 13, verse 19. Now, because the devil knows full well that immortality can be gained through grasping and retaining the message of the kingdom, the devil is at great pains to destroy all knowledge of that message and to suppress it wherever he can. That's why Jesus then gave us a brilliant intelligence report in Luke 8, verse 12. He said that when anybody hears the message of God, the message of the kingdom, 
as the parallel verse in Matthew 13:19 shows, when anyone hears that message, the devil is intent upon stealing that message away from the person's heart and mind, so that, Jesus said, he cannot believe it and be saved. There you have a marvelously illuminating verse showing how Jesus viewed the process of salvation, showing how Jesus taught that salvation could be embarked upon. It wasn't simply by vaguely accepting him in your heart or even receiving him into your life, as modern terminology often tells us. It's very much more specific in the language of the Bible. Accepting Jesus is always clarified and defined as accepting the message of Jesus, namely the gospel of the kingdom, which of course was the very heart of his whole teaching. We find then that the spark of immortality is created by the reception of Jesus' gospel message. Jesus, John, Peter, and Paul all agree that becoming a Christian involves responding in faith to the seed, which is the gospel about the kingdom, Matthew 13:19. John, in his epistle, says of believers that, and I quote, God's seed remains within him, and he cannot go on sinning, 1 John 3, verse 9. James, you'll remember, spoke in James 1.18 of the fact that God becomes our Father, creating a rebirth by the word of truth. It is the message of the gospel which must make contact with the convert if he is to embark upon the process that leads to life in the coming age of the kingdom of God. So both James and John know that the born-again process could be initiated only by contact with the message of the kingdom. Why is it that today we hear so much about being born again and almost nothing about how that process comes about? According to Jesus and the apostles, it is intelligent reception of the seed, the message about the kingdom, Matthew 13:19, which causes Christian rebirth. There's a considerable difference between vaguely accepting Christ in your heart and Jesus' terminology when he spoke of understanding and accepting the word about the kingdom, Matthew 13, verse 19. In the language of Jesus, becoming a Christian means hearing and understanding, receiving and holding on to the message about the kingdom of God. Now, Paul, of course, confirmed that understanding entirely when in Romans 10:17 he wrote, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by Messiah's message, the message of Christ. You see, there's a chain of events that must take place. The preacher must preach the message of the kingdom faithfully, and the convert must hear that message and take it in, embrace it, and hold on to it through trial and tribulation, and thus bear fruit fit for the kingdom of God in the future. Now, there's a good reason why many churchgoers seem to have a very vague idea of what the Bible says about the future of our world. The truth is that Jesus' teaching about the future kingdom of God, a new divine world government on the horizon, is extremely unpopular in religious academic circles. Academic theologians train pastors who teach churches, and often there's a built-in antipathy among scholars to what we would call the messianic hope of Jesus, the hope for the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth at the return of Jesus. Scholars, it seems, would much prefer a Jesus who taught an ethic of timeless love and fellowship with God. 
they are much less enthusiastic about a God who promises to send his Son to introduce by a cataclysm parallel to the flood of Noah a new world order on the earth. And yet Jesus clearly promised his followers that they would inherit just such a new society on earth, the kingdom of God. You remember the famous beatitude of Jesus, Blessed are the meek, they are going to inherit the earth. And that's only an alternative way of saying that they are going to inherit the kingdom of God on the earth. We are praying, Thy kingdom come, which is a time when God's will will be done on earth as it's being done in heaven. Now, Jesus never, in fact, promised anyone heaven, as we so commonly hear the term used today. He did say that a Christian's reward is presently stored up with God in heaven. The reward, however, is to inherit the promised renewed earth of the future, the kingdom of God. You'll find that in Matthew 5, verse 5, and also in Revelation 5, verse 10, which states that all the saints of all the ages and of all the nations are going to rule as kings on the earth. Belief in a brand new world coming is the essence of the Hebrew prophet's message, and it's the heart of what Jesus taught under his banner, under his slogan, the gospel about the kingdom of God. You'll find that described in Matthew 4, verse 23, Matthew 9, verse 35, in Luke 4, verse 43, Acts 8, 12, Acts 19, verse 8, Acts 28, verses 23 and 31. Remember to request from us a book about the kingdom of God and join us again as we continue our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel of the kingdom of God.